Lord, needs were mentioned. I think of the many people who live to the west of us, whose homes have burned, whose lives have been shattered and upended because of fire. I pray that during these days you would supply and meet their needs. That Holy Spirit, you would touch them. Lord, we think of the many people in the nation of Afghanistan whose lives are in abject terror right now. Evil, Lord, would kill, would destroy. We pray that your church, this small body that is there, that you would put your arms around them, that you would hide them in the shadow of your wings, that in very specific ways you would insert yourself into that situation to protect people's lives. And Lord, we pray that the gospel would go forth. Lord, I pray that our failure as a nation to stand by these people would not hinder the gospel. That grieves us. Pray for John that you would heal his body. I know others have been ill. This one that was mentioned that it is in intensive care today. Oh Lord, we know that you intensively care. And we pray that you would do so. Lord, meet us in this place today. In your name, amen.
prayer today, you may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and as we begin, let's look to the Lord in the word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that, Father, you would give us eyes to see. That, Father, you would bend our wills to your, to your will. That, Father, even as we read this morning in the scriptures, you were speaking about what you would do even yet in the nation of Israel. That you would give them a new heart. We thank you that we live in this new covenant in which we receive a new heart. And yet, Lord, our heart is so deceitful. It is so desperately wicked. Lord, we need you to cleanse our heart, to mold our heart, to make our heart in such a way that we would love you with all our heart. Lord, we love so many things. So many things that really don't even matter. Father, help us to see that we can never even love another human being the way you would have us to love that human being until we first love you. That it is in that love for you that our love for each other is deepened and broadened and matures away from just the selfish pursuits of our own desires. Holy Spirit, Open these eyes that in the written word today we may see Jesus. Oh, we pray this. In your name, amen. We're going to look in chapter 11 this morning. We're going to do so differently than many times as we study the word. Most of the times as we study, we kind of go sentence by sentence and paragraph by paragraph we get down into the minutia of some of the sentences, and that's important and that's good as we expound on the Word of God. Today I want to look at the big picture. To do that, as we begin, let's think again about this entire section in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 form a complete section. The section deals with the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it is set in the context of what God is doing in the nation of Israel. You know, there's kind of hot button topics that we face in our culture and even in the churches today in America and in the world. If, if, if we could go back in time and live in Paul's day, one of the fundamental questions that these people are wrestling with is what happened to Israel? Israel was God's chosen people. He put a covenant upon Abraham. He set him apart. And all through the Old Testament, you see this covenant unfolding 
and then fulfilled in the promised coming of the Messiah. And he comes, and in John 1 it says he came to his own people, and his own people would not receive him. What's that? What happened to Israel? What's going to happen to Israel? This is a fundamental question as we understand the Bible. It's not just the stuff of ivory towers in academia. I want you to see as we go through this this morning, by the end of this, I want you to see how fundamentally important this is. What happened to Israel? What will happen to Israel? Next week we'll come back into the chapter and we'll look a little bit more in depth at some of the prophecies. Today let's kind of get the big picture. Here is the core question. Paul leads with it in verse 1. Notice what he says. Just notice something. Most of the time as we go through the book of Romans, Paul is foreseeing a question that his readers will have, and so he says, you ask. But here, Paul flips that around and he is asking them a question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? I ask then, has God set aside, cast away, broken faith and covenant with his people? This is a pretty definitive answer, isn't it? What does he say? By no means. By no means has he done that. Do not suppose that since Israel rejected the Messiah, God in turn rejected Israel. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God, now notice this statement, declarative statement. God has not rejected his people whom he, what? Foreknew. Important word. We've studied that word before in the context of our individual salvation. We were foreknown by God when? Before the foundation of the world. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. By no means has God cast away his people. In this chapter, he then proceeds to demonstrate to us from both past events, we're going to look at Elijah, we're going to look at a time of apostasy during the days of Elijah, when Elijah thinks he's what? I'm the only guy left. I'm the only guy that's been faithful. And what does the Lord tell him in his time of despondency and despair? I got 7,000, I foreknew, I chose, they have not bowed the knee to Baal. God always has his people. So we will see from past events, as well as future prophecies, that God has a sovereign plan for Israel. And nothing will get in the way of that plan unfolding as God deems in his will. And so the core question is, has God rejected his people? Did God set aside the nation of Israel and now choose the church? A Gentile bride. Now, 
when we began into this section back in chapter 9, I led into that part of the study by putting up a picture. And I'm going to do it again, and we're going to talk about it for just a minute. <clears throat> right? This is a picture of a caterpillar. It goes into a cocoon. It comes out as a lovely monarch. Did you ever try to do that when you were a kid, save one of them? Did anybody get a lovely monarch? I only ever got moths and other things, and most of them never hatched or came out or whatever. It's probably because I was too, you know, too hurried up to get them out, and I started picking at the cocoon, and it wasn't ready to come. There's a lesson in that, too, right? God puts us on a cocoon, and he puts us in there for a period of time. Use that picture to demonstrate something. <clears throat> the caterpillar, beginning stage, it goes through metamorphosis, it comes out as a butterfly. The intention is the mature state. To get to the mature state, you've got to go through the process. The mature state of the kingdom of God is that all the nations would come to him in Christ, the church. To get to that stage, he starts with Israel. That does not mean that now that we have come to the butterfly stage, God will not go back to Israel. Think with me about this. As the church began, it was primarily what in composition? Book of Acts. Jewish. Almost exclusively. It's not till a guy named Cornelius comes to faith that you begin to see Gentiles come into the church. It's a slow process, and it was an ugly process. And they had to work through struggles as it happened. Now, the church is composed of what primarily? Gentiles like us. There's a few Jews good friend. You know, we're supporting now as a church, the ministry, David Sadaka is the executive vice president for Chosen People's Ministries. He's been here many times and presented the work of Chosen People's Ministry that is set up exclusively, not exclusively, I guess they'll reach anyone with the gospel, but primary emphasis is to take the gospel to the people of Israel. He spends much time in the nation of Israel, a lot of time in Argentina, because there are many Jews in Argentina. And he spends a lot of time in New York. There's a lot of Jews in New York. But he, meant, he, he spends most of his time ministering and converting, preaching the gospel to Jewish people. You know what? He's not seeing tons and tons and tons and tons of fruit. He's seeing some. But today, the church is primarily composed of Gentiles. You will notice in this chapter, as we go through it, that was prophesied. That switch would happen. I'm going to suggest to you that as we get to the end of time, we are once again going to see a shift. And God is going to be working in ethnic Judaism, bringing powerful repentance and faith. But you'll also notice in this chapter, parallel to that, it's not going to be like all the Gentiles go away. It is going to be increased riches to the Gentiles. You'll notice that as we go through this. This is a pretty important subject to think through. I want you to go with me. Now, I'm not going to use a lot of slides today. In fact, I'm going to go one more time, and I'm not going to touch it, and that's a blank one. Because I want you to turn in your Bibles. And I want you to go with me to a lot of different places. One of them, where we're going to start, is the passage that Keith read to us in Scripture reading. It was in Ezekiel 37. Did you remember that, or did you already lose that thought? Ezekiel 37, go back there. 
I want to draw your attention to something. In Ezekiel 36, we have some very specific teaching about what God is going to do to the nation of Israel. In chapter 37, we have a vision about what God is going to do to the nation of Israel. If you flip one chapter over, and we're not going to go into it this morning, but in the chronology, you'll get to chapter 38 and chapter 39, which details this huge war against God of a confederacy of all the nations through Gog and Magog. We're not going to build on that today, but I want you to think about that progression of events in relationship to the book of Revelation and the unfolding of prophetic timetables. I want to draw your attention to 36 and 37 because it touches on this subject of Israel. There are many people out there today that want to just say that all of the Old Testament prophecies to Israel should be interpreted figuratively and applied to the church spiritually. Is that a legitimate position to take? Now, maybe that's not the best way of saying that because some of you may legitimately take that position. Or that may be your position. If that is your position, I hope to put a couple of kinks in your armor this morning. And I want you to think about some things that are in this text. Notice with me, first of all, chapter 36. In verse 22, he says this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. It is for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. And I will bring you into your own land. We'll just stop there in 36. Chapter 37 that Keith read to us is a vision. It's a vision of a valley that is full of dry bones. The Spirit takes him into this valley and he sees spread before him dry bones. I've seen a lot of dry bones out on the range. I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of dry bones, though, of human beings. It's usually like cows or elk or deer, something that got chewed on by a coyote and left the rock. He is standing on the precipice of a valley looking across a place where there has been a battle and no one has gathered up these bodies to bury them. It is full of dry bones. And they are bleached, and they are cracked. There is no life in them. When you see bones, you're not thinking, well, maybe that animal ain't really dead. Are you? No, you're thinking what? That thing's been dead a long time. And he sees all these bones. And God says to him, stand there and prophesy. Well, how silly is that? <laughs> he begins to speak the word of the Lord. Bone comes back to bone. All of a sudden, standing up before him is a great army. 
sinew and muscle and skin. That's like something out of a sci-fi movie, isn't it? That'd be a fun one to make. But they're just standing there. He says, prophesy to breath. He does. And all of a sudden, this army sucks some wind. And they're alive. What does this mean? I'm sure Ezekiel is wondering. Notice what it means. Notice the next statement, because we most of the time pass over it. Are the whole house of Israel. During Ezekiel's day, was there a political alliance between all the tribes? Was there one king? No. There's two. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. They are divided in half, worse than the Mason-Dixon line. They are divided. You have a king in Judah. You had a king in the northern tribes, and they don't really see eye to eye. They're at war constantly. But here he says to them, this is to the whole house of Israel. All 12 tribes. Notice what he says. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off. We are what? Rejected. Chapter 11. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will what? Bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and I raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your land... Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So what does this mean? Why is this important? I want you to listen to the words of a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in London, England, before any of us were alive. Mid-1800s, end of the 18s. Now, the reason that's important is, when did Israel once again get on the map? 1948. 1917, there was a declaration called the Balfour Declaration towards the end of World War I that allowed for the Zionist movement to begin to work towards the establishment of Israel in its homeland. 1948, it's declared, and from then on, there were ceaseless wars for a long period of time, and they're always in the news today. Right? When Spurgeon writes this, there is no nation of Israel. Okay? Now listen to what he says. I want you to listen to what he says about this text. The reason I want you to hear this, you've got to listen up. I know it's, it, how many of you get warm in here? I am. Maybe I'm the only one because I'm speaking. But it's, it's a little warm, so listen. Don't lose this. I know this sounds kind of like, I don't know, uh, academic, but it's very important. I want you to get this down. I want you to hear what Spurgeon says because this is important to this debate on whether we should take this prophecy symbolically. And that, by the way, is a big debate in the church today. Two weeks ago, I went to Iron Sharpens Iron, where John does his Bible study. They're going through the book of Revelation. It was a big debate. <laughs> right, guys? That in Iron Sharpens Iron, it was a big debate. What does this mean? Now listen to this. This vision has been used. He's talking about Ezekiel 37. From the time of Jerome, it's like the 4th century, comes out with the Latin Vulgate, he was a Roman Catholic scholar, a very learned man, did many good things for the church. But during that time, okay, he says, this vision has been used from the time of Jerome onwards as a description of the resurrection and certainly 
it may be so accommodated with much effect. In other words, says you can preach from this and really bring out some things about how God regenerates us by his spirit through preaching. You can make that application. Then Spurgeon says this. But while this interpretation of the vision may be very proper as an accommodation, it must be quite evident to any thinking person that that is not the meaning of the passage. There is no allusion made by Ezekiel to the resurrection. And such topic would have been quite apart from the design of the prophet's speech. I believe he was no more thinking of the resurrection of the dead than he was thinking of the building of St. Peter's at Rome with the emigration of the Pilgrim Fathers. The meaning of our text as opened up by the context is most evidently if words mean anything first there shall be a political restoration of the Jews to their own land and to their own nationality and then secondly there is in the text and in the context a most plain declaration that there shall be a spiritual restoration, a conversion, in fact, of the tribes of Israel, her sons. Though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at a hopeless distance from her consecrated shores. That was the 1800s. But it shall not be so forever. They shall again walk upon her mountains, shall once more sit under her vines and rejoice under her fig leaves. And they are to be reunited. There shall not be two, nor ten, nor twelve, but one Israel praising one God, serving one king, and that one king, the son of David, the descended Messiah. They are to have a national prosperity which shall make them famous. And then he says this, and I'll skip past some, because your eyes are glazing. <laughs> if there be meaning in words, this must be the meaning of the chapter. I wish never to learn the art of tearing God's meaning out of God's words. If there be anything clear and plain, the literal sense and the meaning of this passage, a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, must be evident that both the two and ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their land. And that a king, Jesus, will rule over them. In that interval, since he wrote that, part of that has happened. Part of it is yet to happen. Go with me to the book of Zechariah now. That is in the Bible, by the way. Okay? It is. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I'm in no way mocking you or making fun of that. It's kind of like, where's that? Okay, I'll tell you where it is. Find Matthew. Just go backwards a bit. Then you'll come to Malachi and you'll come to Zechariah. Let's go back to Zechariah and I want you to go to chapter 12. I want to just show you a verse. I told you we were going to do an overview of the chapter and we didn't even get there. I guess that'll happen next week. So look in Zechariah chapter 12. Notice verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and a plea for mercy so that when they look on me on him whom they have pierced, 
They shall mourn for him as how one mourns who has lost an only child. And they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. In Revelation chapter 1, in Revelation in chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that will be fulfilled on the great day that the Lord returns. Quoting that text. Now go to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to quit in just a minute or two. The supporting arguments are these. He begins the chapter in verse 1 by saying a question. Has God rejected his people? We're going to come back to that at the conclusion. Verse 7 is a topic sentence of the next paragraph. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Notice verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble, which they did stumble, but did they stumble in order that they might fall irrevocably? That's the idea of the word fall, to fall irrevocably. By no means. Rather, now notice this is important. This shows the plan of God. Rather, through their trespass, God brought salvation to the Gentiles. And why did he do that? Because he was done with Israel? No. To make Israel jealous. Now, if the trespass means riches for the world, and I want you to notice this statement because we'll try to unpack this next week. If the trespass means riches to the world, if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, which it does, right? That's why we're all here. And if it meant that, what does he say? What's going to happen when they are fully included? Just think about that statement for a minute. Think of the question he's asking. If their being set aside brought blessing to us, what is going to happen when they are fully included? The implication is what? Blessing on the Gentiles that we can't even imagine. So then verse 13 says, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow I might make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save what? In this period of time? Some of them. And then he gets two analogies. The analogy of a lump of dough and the analogy of a root and branches. He then goes and he talks about an olive tree and us, wild olive shoots, are grafted in. And then in verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come on Israel. Forever? What does he say? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Notice with me verse 28. Here's the conclusion. Next week we'll try to unpack it a little bit more. As regards the gospel... The Jewish people in this period of time are enemies to the gospel and it is what? For your sake. In the plan of God. But as regards election, they are beloved. Why? For the sake of their forefathers. And then notice verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are what? Irrevocable. 
That takes us back to verse 1. This is why that's important. When we ended chapter 8, God says to us, what can separate you from the love of God? Can tribulation distress? Can anything? What did we see? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Those people read that and they're immediately saying, well, what happened to Israel? And here he says what? The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He's coming back full circle to help us trust what? The word of God. I was reading something that John Piper had to say about this, and I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to shut up and close. Here's what he said. The main point that Romans chapter 9 through 11 was written to prove in view of Israel's unbelief and rejection is this. What is at stake ultimately here is not the fate of Israel. Ultimately, God's trustworthiness is at stake. And if God's word of promise cannot be trusted to stand forever for Israel, then all our faith is in vain. That's what this is all about. And so if there's one thing I want you to leave with this morning, it's this. This subject concerning Israel is vitally important to our understanding of the veracity, the trustworthiness of what God has spoken. My eternal destiny, and I trust yours, totally rests on whether or not this word is true. If it's not, my goose is cooked because I got no backup plan. None. All my eggs are in this basket. Can I trust God's word? What God has said will come to pass. We have seen it in the past, and it will yet happen. Father, as we close this morning, we look for that day when you pour out upon your people, these people who rejected you, a spirit of grace and a plea for mercy. And Lord, I just pray that you would pour out upon them that spirit, but that, Lord, you would also pour it out upon us. That, Lord, our eyes would be open to see him whom we have pierced. We would mourn, and we would trust him. I thank you for your word that it is true. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Would you stand and let's sing our favorite song today.
Come on back out tonight for youth group, otherwise you are dismissed.